In the story of the gospel in the Old Testament, God is, uh, was so faithful to carry the message of Christ and the cross all the way through in this relationship with Israel and, um, and Judah and, and just the way that God dealt with his people. He was so faithful to carry this message across. I don't know how many of you have read the Old Testament since you've discovered the imputed righteousness of Christ and really understood the grace of God. But if you go back and read the Old Testament with those glasses on, it's amazing how all of the Old Testament and all the stories hold within them this line of the gospel, of the completion of the gospel that would happen with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it just how it beautifully pictures, and God was bringing his people, bringing us, bringing mankind uh, to the place where we could understand the depths of what of his love for us revealed in Christ. All of it is shown there. Um, and it's, it's just beautiful to see. And this morning as we're, as we're going to talk about uh, an encounter that Jesus has uh, in Old Testament or Old Covenant time period while Jesus was on the earth, he was operating within the Old Covenant, which is uh, the laws, the feasts and festivals and keeping all of those. Today we're going to talk about the Passover feast, uh, which in John's gospel he, he uh, talks about in Jesus' four years of his ministry, public ministry. He went to the Passover all four years. Uh, and so Jesus participated and, and, and ultimately fulfilled uh, all this Old Testament scripture that was given to us. But it matters. Everybody awake this morning? Listen, it matters that we don't lose the message of the gospel in what we do in our religious practice. It matters to God. We're going to see the heart of Jesus today uh, in a way that we haven't seen him yet. We're going to see the zeal that he has for the Father's house, which wasn't a zeal for a physical place. It was that he had a zeal for the message that God wanted to give to the people and the maintaining of that message and and the removal of all distractions that would distract us from getting that message. And there's never been a time, in my opinion, there's never been a time in history and there's never been a place more needful of this message than central Louisiana and now. We live in the place that if Jesus were to walk in here today or if he were to walk into our churches in this town, uh, we would find him having the same kind of response. And I, I'm asking God today for me, uh, or this week I've asked God, and I'm asking him today for you, for God to come in and purify us, to purify our motives and our practices to, to come in here and to, to turn over our tables and to come in here and, and, and uh, correct us where we need correction, to find us in the midst of, of our distractions, of our, the things that are moving us away from the message of Christ and to move us as a church away from those things that we still hold on to that are stopping the world around us, the lost in our community, from seeing the reality of who God is. This whole series, really, for me, is, is a prayer of hope that God will, will bring us to an authentic love for him that results in, a, in an authentic 
religion. When we talk, sang today about I'm letting go of my religion, I love that, love that. We may do it again at the close if Kobe feels led. But just that, that idea of, uh, if he wants a paycheck, I mean, no, uh, it's like I got that authority. I can't even keep Zach from throwing rocks on the roof, much less. No, I'm just kidding. But really, honestly, this, this, we desperately need God to, to touch us in this way today. I hope that you're ready to hear from the Lord and to, and to receive correction, to, to concentrate on where you really are in your life and that this week would be a week of cleansing for us, that the Holy Spirit would, would be able to do in us what the Holy Spirit does because he is Jesus in spirit form living in us, that the Holy Spirit, we would encounter his character purifying our practices in such a way that we would, be, we, we would return and be refined and return to this message of the gospel and letting our lives be about Jesus and our lives being about the gospel and not about anything else. We live in a time where, you know, we have been through so many different phases of, of what good religion is. And, and it has taken the form of spicy and mild services and casual and formal dress and, you know, uh, worship, contemporary and traditional worship. And it's, it's all these forms and it's, uh, it, can, it can be anything. That, and, we, and what we do is we trade one form for another. And Jesus would come into our form today and say, Holy Spirit wants to come in today and say, you need to check up. You need to check yourself. You need to let, my, let me be the maintain. I'm going to maintain this message of the gospel. And I'm going to do it in this church with a few of you or all of you. But the Holy Spirit wants us to know that today, that he's going to come in and do his work because he has a zeal for the house of God, which is us. John chapter 2, verse 14 to 22, is where we pick up. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers uh, sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who, were, uh, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, as I said, John records Jesus' attendance at all four Passovers following his baptism. And the reason was because Jesus had a passionate commitment to communicate the love of God to people. There was no better way to communicate the love of God to his people than to remember uh, the Passover in Israel's history. The events of the Passover were given to remember the most beautiful display of the love of God in Israel's history. And it would serve as a connecting point also for Jesus between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
He changes the meaning of it in John chapter 13 when he's meeting with his disciples in uh, 13 through 15 where he tells them, uh, where he breaks bread with them and they, they share the supper and he says, this is now my blood, my body, and this is my blood. And so it serves as that connecting point between the old and new covenants. And as a result of the Passover, uh, drawing these sincere lovers of God from every nation to Jerusalem, you can imagine that Jesus for his first three years prior to his baptism coming into uh, or all the years prior to his baptism, coming in to the Passover feast, a sincere lover of God himself, the most sincere lover of God who ever existed, never missing the opportunity for this Passover celebration and feast, how he, how he was, how the disdain must have grown within his heart and his desire to do something, to do something. And as he told his mother last week, you know, I, I'm un, I have to do what the Father says, and I have to be about his business. And we'll see that again in this story. But finally, the time for his public ministry arrives, and Jesus comes to his first Passover. And, this, and his love for the message of Christ, and his love for this, for this message, to be the love of God, to be clearly displayed and clearly demonstrated and clearly communicated, rises up. In a, in a moment of cleansing. And he does it. All those years he wanted to cleanse the temple, and now he could. Now, just like we talked about last week, the first thing I think that we see in this story we need to remember is that Jesus is about his father's business. This is not something that should not have been expected from the Messiah. Matter of fact, there you'll see later in the story that they're asking for a sign because uh, there should be some signs tied to the Messiah doing whatever the Messiah does. Words getting around that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Messiah. But in verse 12, Mary and the disciples went with Jesus to Capernaum, and so they're probably still with him, and they're still uh, looking for, I'm sure, another miracle and a public miracle. His mother's looking for that. But as Jesus, Jesus made it clear to Mary at the wedding feast, he was about his father's business and, and about his father's timing. And this time, the father wouldn't have Jesus celebrating and showing favor to those who had gathered for this feast. This time, God was ready to cleanse the motives of worship and reveal himself as a sanctifier of souls and a maintainer of the message of truth, and a God of justice. This was not some random act of anger on Jesus' part. It bothers me when I hear people talk about, well, Jesus got angry, turned over the temple, turned over the tables in the temple, to justify their kind of random acts of anger towards either the people of God or, or lost people in the world, which is kind of ironic. This was not a random fit of anger by Jesus. This was Jesus fulfilling his ministry. This is Jesus being about his father's business. The time had come for this cleansing to happen, and Jesus was going to be about that. So this was part of the father's plan. And for those who were paying attention, those who had been paying attention really, who are familiar with the prophets and the words of the prophets would have understood. They would have certainly remembered 
some of the things that the Old Testament, some of the experiences in the Old Testament, particularly, they would have remembered Hezekiah's cleansing of the temple. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, the story is told of a, another cleansing of the temple and the results that happened as a result of that. I'm sure that the people, when they came together, spoke about this time in history because there were so few kings who were kings who were after God, who were following after David's example. And Hezekiah was one of those kings. It says in verse 14 through 14 and 15 of chapter 30 of Second Chronicles, they, they set to work and remove the altars that were in Jerusalem. Do you know how few times that happens? Even the godly kings didn't remove the altars. But they set to remove the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed. And so they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. So here they are. Cleansing of the temple is happening. All these years of, of following false gods, of having altars to other gods in the temple, of making sacrifices to other gods in the high places around Jerusalem. All of this false worship. And finally, a godly king comes into place in Hezekiah, and, and he tears all of that down, and they return, and the temple is cleansed. And what happens? This is what people will remember. Verse 20 says, And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. And so they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep for offerings. And princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was a great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had not been there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voices and their voice was heard and their prayer came to the holy mountain in heaven. And so you see this experience. They couldn't come together. This one-time experience after years and years and years since the time of Solomon of nobody having experiences like this with the Lord, of, of the, the, the temple of God being defiled by people who had their own motives and their own agendas and were using the, the house of God for personal gain. They had this in their memory. It was in their story. It was in their history. And they talked about it. Just like we would, if you, you know, if you, how many times have you been in a church where a great revival happened and, and God really moved and people always talk about that revival that happened when they were 13 or 14 years old, that time way back 20 years ago when God moved in the church. We want to see God do that again in every revival service. When it comes up time, that time of year when we do revivals in churches, whatever time that is, when we have our revival services, 
and we, we dedicate ourselves to those used to be 10 days. Now it's, then it was seven, then it was three. And then we realized we can't bring revival, I think. And so we quit having the services, but we used to have those. And when we'd have those services, we talk about what, what can we do to make it? Remember that time back whenever, let's do that again. And we think there's formulas that we can do. And we start trying to piece everything together the right way. But it's because so-and-so preached that revival. Is he still around? Is he still doing revivals? Let's call him. You know, and such and such was doing music, and he had that harpsichord thingy and the, and the ventriloquist puppet. And that what God really moved. You know, so let's get all that back together and see what happens. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Our, all of us can relate to this one, so let's quit talking about those people who you might not be. Let's go back to the same camp at the same place and have our youth experience, and God's going to move again. And, and whether God moves or not, we're going to cry on Thursday night, right? We're going to huddle together. We're going to make commitments that we're not going to keep because that's what we do. But we're going to go back to the same place, same speaker, same you know, centrifuge. is centrifuge because centrifuge is centrifuge. It has nothing to do with anything. You can go out and with a bunch of teenagers in a mosquito-infested camp somewhere in the woods, and, and God's going to show up on Thursday night. It doesn't matter if you're centrifuge or not. But somehow the formula became centrifuge which was fantastic for them, right? They made a lot of money. But that's what we do. And the same thing was happening here. There's no way that they got together for Passover and didn't talk about Hezekiah. And this day when God moved and the, and the people went on an extra seven days. Can you imagine? Revival was so strong. They said, let's keep going, man. And it was real and it was personal and God was moving. This was an honest-to-goodness revival that God brought on. Now, they couldn't. If they were paying attention, then they should know that when Jesus came in and cleansed the temple, he was doing the same thing that God did in the time of Hezekiah. They should know it. He looks like God. They should know that through what he's doing. Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi in chapter 3, talks about Messiah coming as a refining fire. Tell me that they shouldn't know this. If they were paying attention to what God was doing in the church, and particularly during the time of Passover, protecting his message and protecting this, this concept of the love of God being demonstrated uh, through the gift of his son. They should have known because of Malachi's prophecy. He says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, talking about John there, and the Lord whom you will seek, will suddenly come to his temple. How can they miss that? He suddenly came to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Look, this was the Father's plan from the beginning of time. Does everybody get that? This is not some new occurrence. Jesus is this. He is doing this. They should know it. Uh, Jesus is coming in and doing the Father's business and connecting the dots for everybody, revealing that God is in control. I love this about this story. 
This is not a random plan. God is accomplishing his plan. I want to remind us as we go into this, just make a few more points about, you know, that we can draw from this. But I want to remind us that Jesus is about his father's business. He is not random in what he does. And the same thing is true about the Jesus that lives in you. The Holy Spirit is the same. He is about his father's business. He's not going to join you if you pray hard enough. He's not going to join you in your agenda if it's outside of the Father's agenda. He's also not impressed with our forms of worship, and he's not impressed with our styles of of worship and church. He's not impressed with the fact that we can fill a church full of people who will come together for a performance of some kind and pizza. All right? God is protecting his message. God is protecting. He wants the world to know that he is a God of love. And he wants the world to get it. And so he has an agenda that's still true today. And we want to be about his agenda, not about ours. Not about trying to find a church that's really doing it a cool way. Or joining the rest of the millennials around the world and doing it the way the millennials are doing it today. Or having the right kinds of focus in our theology. Or using the word gospel 40 times in a message to make sure we fit in. Glad y'all can appreciate that. Let's look at what else Jesus reveals about himself in this story. I think this story reveals that Jesus is the purifier of motives and the sanctifier of our efforts. They sold beasts and sacrifices in the temple for a profit. They changed money at a profit for temple tax to be paid. The people had taken God's house and were using it for personal gain. You can go and study those things out and see the details of that. But basically what was happening, what might have initially started out as, as a way to help the poorer people and people who, didn't, who were traveling from a long distance to be able to have a good worship experience, uh, maybe they, they offered uh, that opportunity for people. But now it became a place of personal gain. What may have started as some, a sincere effort to help people worship and have sacrifices to offer and pay temple tax now became a way, hey, we can make a profit doing this, and let's move it into the court of the Gentiles. And then it became all of a sudden, uh, you know, maybe year after year passed. I don't know how many years this happened, but year after year passes, and then all of a sudden they have this form of whatever it is, religion, that has nothing to do with the message of God, and now it is actually causing people to, to be focused on something besides the message of God and the person of God. And so these people had taken God's house and were using it for personal gain, and Jesus was cleansing their motives, and he was cleansing this religious activity by coming into the temple and turning over their tables. And Jesus does the same for us. I want, to, I want to say this, church, and I know you know this, but I want us to hear it again, and I want us to apply this to our lives, and I want to ask you this week to ask yourself some questions regarding this. Jesus is never satisfied with just form and function alone. Jesus is bringing purity to the process of, of Israel's worship. And for us, The church today is working for selfish gain. There's no doubt about it. The the church as a whole, we are, and and we'll we'll start with us, but we can find plenty of examples of what we've been in the past 
and, and I want to give help us to see this, but we are all about personal gain. How many people can we have? How many buildings can we have? How many, what kind of name can we make for ourselves? And when we, in our conversations, we, we have this sanctified talk that we, that we do, this religious talk about, well, yeah, well, God has really blessed us because we had this many people at our group or this many people in our church. And we're just anything we can do to say God and how many we had is what makes us feel good because it's personal gain. We want you to pat us on the back. We want you to say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. And we're looking forward to getting, as pastors, to getting a bigger church, a bigger church, going from one place to another, rather than maintaining the message of God, rather than coming back and being revived by the person of Jesus who we are discovering and being all about that and letting that be what our life is about. We're all about personal gain. We're all about getting the bigger job, the more, the more money, finding jobs within the church, getting something to do that gives us a little bit of status. So the church today is working for selfish gain. There's no doubt in this. We're, we're guilty of the same thing. The church today is also busy and empty. We are busy doing a lot of stuff, and we are empty. There is no life in it. Bill knows this. Look, if you've, if you've ever served as a pastor in a church, for, of a church that's not the gathering place, for any period of time, you know The church will keep you busy, 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 doing everything, going to meetings, going to everything that you can possibly think of and make you feel guilty if you don't. We're busy. These people were busy. They were doing stuff. They were very busy. Can you imagine having to get all the doves together and having to to get all the change together, be able to make change for people to pay their temple tax? Can you you imagine all the work that's tied to that and being there, uh, you know, for the whole time of the Passover feast and being and selling these things and all the work that's involved in that and all the sacrifices that were being offered and, and all of it was, was out of focus. And so Jesus comes in and he purifies their motives and he sanctifies their efforts by turning over their tables, getting rid of the, of the, of the birds and helping them to have this, this incredible uh, jolt that they needed in their spiritual life. They needed a jolt to see that what they were doing, what they were actually doing in the moment that they were doing it was wrong and it needed to be, it needed to be corrected. And Jesus loves us enough that he'll come in in the middle of us doing the best that we think we can do and he will correct it. And, and we need that, church. We need to stay on the potter's wheel. We need to stay in the place of correction. We need Jesus to, to daily. It's not an ugly picture. It's a beautiful picture. To daily get, make a cord or a whip of small cords and to, to whip us into shape. Because we want to be about what he wants us to be about. And sometimes it takes that. Sometimes we need to be disciplined in harsh ways in order to get back where we need to be. But Jesus is the purifier of motives and the sanctifier of our efforts. Jesus is also, as I've said already, and we'll say again, that he is the protector and defender of truth. Jesus' zeal for the house was not a zeal for the building, but first of all, a zeal for God's people to respond to the truth about God. You know, we use these examples all the time, but the problem that the prophets were speaking about over and over again was that Israel had caused the, the nations around them to have this false perception of who God was. They didn't understand who God was because God was constantly having to discipline his people. 
And God is all about people knowing who he is. He wants us to know him, to see him in his glory, to realize that he is love. And that's the furthest thing from the minds of the people of Israel at this time, is that God is a God of love. They have to constantly go back to this Passover feast, the one time where it seemed like God was a God of love, and then two days later they're complaining because they think God's brought them in the wilderness to die. They never got it. And And sometimes I feel like we never get it either. But Jesus is a protector and defender of truth. He is not going to allow this most significant historical symbol of truth to be overshadowed by the personal gain of those who are selling doves and changing money. Passover is the precursor to our salvation through the blood of Christ. And Jesus is protecting the message of truth. He's the one who has protected his word Uh, Through the ages, he continues to protect his word. And we need to realize that that he is a God that does that. He protects and defends the truth. I think we need to receive this word in a couple of different ways. I, I believe it's good news to us that Jesus protects the truth. That no matter what we do as churches, no matter how far off we get, and, and I, I really believe, honestly, that, that there, have been time, there have been times when I have prayed through and th- sought the Lord, read back in our own history as Southern Baptists, looked at how we responded to the great movements of God. There, there's times when I believe that we have done, I, I really think that we are right here, that we are the people in this story, where we have just done one thing after another after another, and I feel like we've gotten so far away from the truth. But one, one thing we need to realize is Jesus is a protector of truth. His truth is being proclaimed. His truth is being understood and being responded to by every person that will ever respond to his truth. He will, he will reveal it, and they will respond to it. So the question is not, is truth going to be revealed? And I, I think we need to, to realize that because uh, one is that we need to know that God is revealing his truth. The Scripture, Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would would, uh, would testify about him. And the Holy Spirit is out there doing that, that, that he would draw men to Jesus, and he's doing that. And people are coming to him. And I think we need to realize that for that sake, is that you know, when, we're, when we're sharing the truth, we need to realize that that truth is being protected. But also, we have had so many fights over the semantics of Scripture. And we fight like God's not taking care of protecting the word we fight like if we don't have this fight you know a southern baptist if we don't have this fight between liberals and conservatives and what inerrancy means then the truth is going to disappear wrong answer god protects his truth you you read the scripture you read the bible you go back and read how the bible came together what a beautiful story of the miracle of god and how god has protected the, the message of the gospel through the years. And he will continue to protect that because that's who he is. I love that about Jesus and the Holy Spirit is he is the protector and the defender of truth. We need to stop fighting over semantics and realize that God's word is not at risk. So Jesus is a protector and defender of truth. Jesus also stood in the defense of those seekers who were outsiders. His zeal was not just for Israel, but also for the Gentiles. He didn't just have a zeal that the people of, uh, the people of God, Israel, would come uh, to see the truth and hold on to the truth, and the truth would be revealed and not 
and no distractions would be there. But he also stood for the Gentiles. This cleansing happened in the court of the Gentiles. And knowing the heart of Jesus, I believe the majority of his righteous anger that he exhibited in the temple that day was due to the fact that the Jewish leaders didn't care how their selling was affecting the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have the privilege of being able to go into the inner court of the temple. They had to stay in the outer court and, and say, oh, let's just sell our doves and our, do our coin changing in the, in the gent- court of the Gentiles. It won't matter. And I can just see the anger of Jesus, the righteous anger dwell, swelling up inside of him, that the love of God, that God is wanting to reveal to the Gentiles. And these Gentiles are lovers of God, and they're gathering as close as they can to the place where God would be seen and would be experienced. They're coming as close as they can in the Old Covenant, in the, in the court of the Gentiles, and they're distracted at every turn by some Jewish person who is selling for personal gain with no consideration that those people would come to, to see the love of God. Jesus stands in their defense. And there, there's not anything, I hope you guys know this about me, there's nothing that draws, that I feel like the Holy Spirit today puts more passion in my heart about in this town than the distractions that we as the church, that we as religious people have given in the face of the lost people in our community. Of, of the, the way that we have presented God and presented God's expectations to a dying world outside. That we just live our lives and do our things and, and we keep working to get our, ourselves a status within the, the organization of the church and, and the people out there despise it because it's not God. If they could see Jesus, we talked about our stands for months if, we, if they could see Jesus rather than seeing our religion, they would be drawn to him. But we're so busy being religious that they never get to see God. And I want to ask you, church, please, this week, take some time personally to sit down before God and say, God, what is it about my life? What is it that I have in my life right now? What habit? What way of responding? What facial expressions when I see people who are lost? Uh, what, what, what is it about me that, that causes those people to see you in a wrong light? And to ask God, please remove that from my life. I don't need that. I don't want that. Whatever it is, I guarantee you, it's not a mo- the motive for having it in your life is not because you want to show Jesus to people. It's because for some reason you, you feel like you've got to protect something. Or you've got a status or you're trying to impress somebody. But the heart of Jesus is for the lost. It's who he came for. He said, I didn't come to call, call righteous but sinners to repentance. I'm, I'm a doctor. I didn't come for those that are well. I came for those that are sick. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Jesus made clear that he was here for sinners, for those people who are outsiders. And we need to recognize that if, we're, if, 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 if the Holy Spirit is here today, he comes into this place with that same attitude that he is coming in here and checking us and, and, and dis- disciplining us if we would be disciplined by him in regard to how we are presenting the truth of who he is to those who are outside the church. We need to realize today that Jesus is very passionate in regard to our practices and how they affect the lost in our city. 
And Jesus is cleansing us. He is. And I, I love that. He has cleansed us. And he's continuing to cleanse us so that he can get his purposes accomplished regarding those people outside. Jesus also revealed his zeal for the house of God to confirm again to the disciples that he is the Messiah. You notice that the disciples were the only ones that noticed it. But Jesus does this. Again, he's, he's walking with his disciples. And not only does he uh, reveal his zeal for the house of God uh, in order to uh, defend the truth, in order to stand for those who are in the church and also stand for those who are outsiders, but he does it so his disciples will remember and see that he's Messiah. You know, the disciples are looking for signs. Uh, but now they've learned that, okay, the signs might not come in miracles. It might come in discipline. Or it might come in some other form. But they're connecting the dots. And Jesus, they're watching Jesus live out all of these prophecies of the Old Testament. And so the disciples in chapter 2, verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And we as disciples, just remember, guys, it's when we were walking with Jesus. We walk with the Holy Spirit, and we allow the Holy Spirit to move and work in our lives. We don't treat the Holy Spirit like some second-class God, but like he's the God of, that is, was lived in the New Testament times instead, that he's Jesus living in us. When we start looking at him that way, and we start walking our lives out with him in the same way they did, asking him questions, responding to his guidance, uh, listening to his his uh, discipline, receiving his love, uh, understanding his parables and his messages, letting him teach us and guide us to all truth. When the, when we realize that the Holy Spirit is that for us, and the same thing is going to be true for us. We're going to start seeing the beauty of how Scripture described, of what Scripture is describing and what God was saying and what God's been doing throughout history. Those truths don't come to us in the same way when we read them as they do when we experience them in our lives. And God wants us to be like the disciples, having these new discoveries about him that are contrary to the teachings that we've learned growing up. The disciples walking, I've used this all the time, but walking into grain fields and Jesus picks grain on the Sabbath and the disciples going, what just happened? I'm sure he just accidentally got stuck between his fingers. He's not going to eat that, is he? All right, heals on the Sabbath, and, and before long they realize, okay, he's fixing to define for us what truth is. And we have that with Jesus. We, we have, Jesus cares enough about us as disciples. He does not, and not only does he not leave us behind, but there's truth. There's mysteries that the Bible describes that we're going to understand because we walk with him. And so it's gonna, you're going to see this constantly happening anytime the disciples are involved. When they're around, they're getting a message that everybody else is not getting because the mystery, they walk with Jesus intentionally and he reveals mysteries to them. And then finally, Jesus gives those who reject him what they need to believe. Jesus gives the ones who would reject him, who would hang him on a cross, who would crucify him, he gives them what they need to believe. They ask Jesus, what sign are you going to do to show that you have the right to come in here and turn these tables over and act like you're in charge here, that, that you're like Hezekiah? What sign are you going to give us that Malachi, what Malachi said, that you are that? What sign are you going to give? Because the Jews knew Messiah would, would give signs. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't leave them empty. He just doesn't give them what they want. He gives them what they need. 
But look at what he does. He says, here's a sign. And he tells them a parable that if they continue to move with him, if they continue to follow him through his life, it's going to make sense at the time of his crucifixion. He says, you destroy this temple. Here's your sign. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. Now, they didn't understand it at the time. But the disciples understood it at his resurrection. The Bible says in this passage that the disciples understood it at his, resur- at his resurrection. And if the Jews were listening, even those that were rejecting him at this moment, those that hated him, despised what he was doing, those who wanted him to prove himself that he had the right to do this in the temple, even those, Jesus says, all right, here's your, here's, here, here you go. This is going to happen. You're going to destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Doesn't make sense now. But on Resurrection Day, which we'll be celebrating here in a few weeks, on Resurrection Day, Jesus rose up, said a lot of different things, but one of the things I know he said, probably, was here's your sign. (laughs) Here's your sign. You've been looking for it. Here it is. You put it down, I'm raising it, I I rose it up. I love that because Jesus doesn't give up just because people are rejecting him. We get so mad at times when, when people stand up against, our, against the truth of God. But the, the truth is we just need to keep telling the truth. If we'll just keep on telling the truth, then one day that truth's going to make sense to those people if they really are paying attention. And God will grab them. So speak the truth. Don't worry about it. God doesn't give up on those even who nail him to a cross. He's always about presenting the message of his father. So where does that leave us today? It leaves us with some work to do this week. It leaves us with some work to do to pray and ask God, God, what is it about me that's distracting others from knowing you? What is it about my my practice, religious practices, that's distracting me from knowing you? And I want to remove all of those. There was a time in my life when I, got, I finally decided I wanted to know God so badly that I said, God, nothing in my religion, and I was a minister at the time, nothing in my religion, in my religious practice, is sacred. I, I wipe it clean, rewrite it, put in what you want. And I just recommend you do that this week. Just take it all, ask God to take it all. Nothing is sacred. And let God rewrite what he's going to write in. And you're going to find opposition at every turn. You're going to find it, but you're also going to find where you'll, you, God will identify where that opposition comes from. And, and that's going to be your way to say, God, turn over the table. Get it out of my life. This would be an easy message, would have been an easy message for me to, to stand up and accuse other churches and talk about how everything they're doing is wrong. And I hope you're not drawn to that like I was. Because God wants this message for us. This is for you. This is for me. And it's been a tough week for me of cleansing and asking questions. And I'm, I'm going to get to spend two days with my wife on the beach. And I'm excited about that. Mainly because I'm going to be able to sit on a balcony and ask God a bunch of questions. And, and I want you to do the same. Take the time this week to ask the Lord. To be the purifier and sanctifier of your life and your worship. And let's get this right so that God's truth will be 
glorified in our lives and through our lives. He's, his truth will be told, and people will respond. But let's, let, let's be the church that can be a vessel for God in this community. All right, let's pray. Lord, we have work to do, I know, and I know that, that uh, Father, you are so patient with us and so kind to, to not give up on us. And so I ask, God, this week as we pray and seek that you would pull out the whip as needed, God, in our lives, correct us, Rebuke us, change us, and God, we won't. Uh, we, we're not going to be offended, but we're asking you to turn over our tables, God, to run out of our lives all the distractions, the things that are causing your your message to be unclear to believers and outsiders alike, Father. Give us a zeal for your house. God, show people around here how good you are through us. We want to be a part of your work. We want to be used by you. So, Father, remove the altars or help us to do that, the altars that are in our lives, God, that, that need removing and bring about a purifying fire and a revival in our hearts that will ultimately change, God, the fruit that you produce in us. We love you. I love you, Jesus. I love the fact that that you are a purifier and sanctifier. That you purify our motives and sanctify our efforts. And we need that as a church. And we submit ourselves to you for that.